As we come to the book of uh, Genesis again, uh, we're in the midst of a look at one particular family that's recorded in the last 13 or 14 chapters of this book. I don't know about you, but I don't know how I would feel about my family history saying for two or three generations even, being exposed for everybody to read. I don't know if I would be happy, and in fact, I probably don't even know all of the skeletons that are in the closets of my family, my immediate family, let alone my uncles and my aunts, my grandfather and my great-grandfather. And I don't know how impressed I would be if the worst aspects of those relationships were revealed for everybody to read. This is how I feel as we work our way through this particular portion of Scripture. I don't really want to touch it, but yet there's something about this section of Scripture that I'm thankful for. And I'm wondering as I go this, well, why? Why does God preserve this portion of Scripture for us, this particular family life? Well, I think he maybe does it for a couple reasons. Um, I think, first of all, it encourages hope. I don't know if anybody comes from a perfect family. Some of us come from better families. Some of us come from worse families. But what I'm beginning to see again and again as I consider these particular chapters is I am amazed. I am amazed at the hope that is instilled through these verses as we see God work. Which is the second thing that I think I realize is taking place is that God's grace and mercy is greater than any depth of darkness that could ever exist in my family or yours. That there's a reach of his mercy, there's a depth to his grace, there is a, a, a profoundness to his goodness and kindness that is almost can only be seen when you open up and expose a family like this and say, is there any hope? Can God redeem that? Does God want to redeem that? And we say, yes, he can, and yes, he does. And I think... Finally, and there's lots of things that we could say, but as I've been reflecting on this, it encourages me to trust the promises of God. Because all of this is evidence that God keeps his word. It's evidence that God is powerful enough to keep his word. It is evidence that there is nothing that is more powerful or it can thwart or stymie the way of God. And so I look at this family and I say, thank you, God, that it was his family and not mine. But thank you, God, for the lessons that I'm learning and the hope that is growing and my view of you that is expanding as I go through these chapters. If you're just visiting with us or you're just dropping in, we've, this is about the fourth week or the fifth week in a series on the life of Joseph, which is actually part of the life of Jacob. In fact, this is a series of stories about the family of Jacob and how God is working out his purposes in them. And there's two individuals in the life of Jacob that have been highlighted for us. The first one we looked at last week, which is a, one of the hardest scriptures to deal with, Genesis 38. But in that, we looked at the life of Judah, and how Judah walked away from God, he walked away from his family, and he, he left for Canaan, and for 22 years, how he, he, he wandered. And yet over those 22 years, God had his hand upon his life and God drew him out of his lostness, brought him back to his family and set him on a course that would find him being in the bloodline of Christ. Well, now we settle into the story of Joseph. 
And for the next number of verses, from actually uh, Genesis 39.1, which we'll read today, all the way to Genesis uh, 41.57, we have the same 22-year period recorded. So in other words, we're walking parallel lines. We're seeing what God is doing in a family. Last week, we looked at what God was doing in the family of Judah over 22 years. Now we're going to dive into the family of Joseph over that same 22 years. And it's just remarkable to me that, that God is always working all over the place in all of our lives and all of our family, no matter where we are. And we're watching him work his amazing grace and providence. 22 years. That's 1997. That's a long time. And sometimes our heart wants God to work in an instant, doesn't it? We have an issue, we have a problem, we have a discouragement. We say, God, you, you, gotta, you gotta answer this tomorrow. Okay, I'll give you a week. All right, all right, a month, but, but no longer. And here we see 22 years of God's incredible working in the day-to-day -day activities of this man's children. We see Judah as he walked away from family and God. And we see Joseph as he's taken away from his family and God. But we'll realize, again, the providence of God behind even the disastrous events of Joseph's life. The first point that I want us to consider today, and I realized in the first service that we'll only get one of them done, and so I'm not quite sure how we'll get the second point done because I already have next week's sermon in my head, but we'll figure that out. But the first point is simply this, the sovereign hand of the Lord, Yahweh. And these first seven verses are theological they are really important verses because these seven verses give us a spiritual framework for how we walk in the phenomenological side of our life or in the experience or the, 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 the things that we face, the things that interact in our physical life. And so as we walk in this world, as all of us do, how do we make sense of that world? Well, one of the ways is this song that we've been singing, Whate'er Thy Hand Ordains Is Right. But the first seven verses of chapter 39, give us the theological perspective on how we make sense of the physical world in which we live. So let's just unpack a few of the things that are said there. Verse 1. Well, let's, let's read the first seven verses. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him his overseer of the house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for the sake of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So verse 1 really kind of sets the scene for us. It picks up where we left off at the end of chapter 36. Remember now, Joseph is 17 years old. 17 years old. And he finds himself now in a country and a culture of which he knows nothing about. 
He's surrounded with a language that he doesn't understand, has never learnt, and has probably rarely heard. It's not unlike Daniel and uh, the, the young men that were ripped out of Judea and taken into Babylon and thrown into the Babylonian system of things. So he is 17 years old, ripped away from his family. Nothing is familiar to him. And while Judah went down of his own accord to Canaan, Joseph is brought down against his will to Egypt. Second thing we read about him is he was sold as a slave. I don't know if we can really wrap our heads around the reality of this kind of experience. 17 years old. He likely would have been pulled into a public setting, placed on a public block, stripped of all of his clothing, and exposed to everyone that was in the slave-buying business that particular day. They would poke him, they would prod him, they would examine him, they would make comments about him. All of the while, he knew nothing of what they were saying. Only I can imagine he was humiliated and he was full of incredible fear. I can't imagine a 17-year-old boy being exposed to that and not having a clue how it was going to turn out. What kind of a home? What kind of a situation? What kind of a master? Would he be mistreated? Would he be well-treated? 17 years old and thrown, as it were, in this completely unfamiliar environment. It's very clear in the text, too, that a point is being made of where he is. He is brought down to Egypt and his master is an Egyptian. The point is made numerous times in these first few verses that, that that is where he was and that is who owned him. And there's a point being made about the environment of Egypt. And then he was bought by Potiphar. Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh. Josephus tells us that he was Pharaoh's executioner. He was in charge of Pharaoh's bodyguard. He was the, the man that if Pharaoh had trouble, he would send Potiphar and his group to deal with. They were the most well-trained. They were the most vicious. They were the most uncaring. They were the most able to dispatch with people in an instant kind of people. This was Potiphar, top of the military guard, uh, top in um, Pharaoh's home. And this was the man who had bought Joseph. So that's the setting. Joseph sold, bought. And now we begin to get a little bit of a description. This incredible theological grid through which we understand our life. And God's work in Joseph's life over the next 22 years. We'll find out he's a personal God. That he's a powerful God. That he's a God who is able to provide. That he's a God who is able to place. He's a God who is able to protect. The first thing that we read right away, is that the Lord was with him. It's, it, it, we, sometimes we just need to stop and think about phrases and words. The, the word Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. It reminds us that God is a relational God, that God enters into covenant relationship with those who put their trust in him through Jesus Christ. It's a name that is used throughout the Old Testament when God is personally involved in the lives of his people. And it's used five times in these verses. 
there's an emphasis that the reader is wanting us to understand that God is a personal God, that we can be in a relationship personally with God, and, and that it is a name that, that people outside of the relationship can't relate or associate with God. It's like probably many of us here have, have names that only our family uses. They're, they're personal names. They're relational names. Your business associates don't know it. Your schoolmates don't know it. It's just a name that, that sort of reminds you that you have a personal connection with a few people that are intimately surrounded in your life. The only other place that this name Yahweh is used in the Jacob account is in verse 21 and verse 23, which again says, and Yahweh was with Joseph when he was thrown into prison. And then in chapter 49, verse 18. On the other hand, we see woven through the first six verses, the name Joseph used six times. I think for me, what it is implying and what it is encouraging us is there is this personal relationship that Joseph experienced with Yahweh. It's an incredible gift that God has made for those that he created that rebelled against him. That you and I, through his son Jesus Christ, can enter into a personal relationship with the God of this universe. That's a point that is being made here. The second thing that it says about in this situation, it says the Lord was with him. Yahweh was with him. That's what the text wants us to remember. And in fact, I think this is one of the overarching, overarching themes that we are meant to remember about the story of Joseph. Because Stephen, when he recounts this story in Acts chapter 7, as he's just about to be stoned because of his faith in Christ and his commitment to God, he writes this, he says this, The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. It's the theme that we found that characterizes the relationship that Yahweh had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 26, 3, sojourn in this land, God says, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. Genesis 28, 15, behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Genesis 31, 3, then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. This is the promise of God, not only to Joseph and to the patriarchs, but it is the promise of God to all of us who are in relationship with him. Do you know that? God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. Wherever you go, God goes. If you walk into prosperity, God is with you. If you walk into adversity, God is with you. If you go off somewhere by yourself, God is with you. If you are in a crowd, God is with you. God will never leave you or forsake you. This is the incredible promise and reality of a relationship with the living God. The Lord was with him. And then it goes on and it says... The Lord Yahweh was with him, and he became a successful man. Remember, this is the big theological picture that we're painting. He became a successful man even in the house of his Egyptian master. I want you to think about stuff today, and I'm going to send you home to wrestle with a bunch of stuff that I'm still wrestling with. The first is simply along this lines: a question. Can we extrapolate from this that Joseph became a successful man 
that this, we can extrapolate this to all people throughout the world without exception. In other words, the only reason that anybody does anything and sees in this world is because God is with them. Can you become successful apart from the Lord? We really need to think this through, loved ones. Because evidently, there are a great many people who don't believe this to be true. They attribute their success to their hard work, to their good education, to their ability to make great decisions because they have such an analytical mind, to their moral goodness and kindness, to their family upbringing, to karma. I don't know who she is, but... But such thinking doesn't square with the testimony of Scripture or the God of providence. You only need to just scratch the surface of Scripture and begin to find out that the Bible reveals a whole different way of looking at success in life. For instance, with Joseph or with Job. Remember how Job was incredibly wealthy beyond all imagination. It's described. And then within a few short minutes, he lost everything. And as he's before the Lord worshiping, he acknowledges the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He acknowledged that everything that he had was from the hand of God and that everything that he lost was because of the hand of God. Or Hannah, who prays after she had just found out that, or she had, had been able to have a child, she says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Do you believe that? And then Moses, who reminds the people as they come out of the desert and they're about to enter into a land and they're, they're going to inherit vineyards that they haven't planted and they're going to move into houses that they didn't build. And there's this great danger that all of a sudden they would pat themselves on the back and say, wow, I'm a pretty good guy because look at what I've got. And so Moses says, you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Joseph was successful because God made him successful. So too are you and I. It is a truth that we need to wrap our heads around and begin to wrestle with. Then we have the evidence of God's blessing in verse 3. Again, let these words settle in your head. This is his master now, his Egyptian master, as Joseph has been working for him for some time now. It says his master saw that the Lord was with him. How, how did he see that? What did he see that, that, that he, he, he looked at Joseph and all of a sudden he said, man, the Lord is with you. But then he attaches the cause to it. He says, he saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. How did he come to that conclusion? What was it in, in Potiphar's head that put two and two together. Well, the only way that I can make any sense of this whatsoever is that Joseph had a humble and a public faith. And that Joseph was always quick to acknowledge the hand of God in his life. Over time, I am sure that he probably told Potiphar his story. I'm sure that after a little while when he maybe learnt the language a little bit, Potiphar might have sat down with him one day or called him over and said, Hey, Joseph, how did you end up in Egypt? 
And I think Joseph might have told him the story of his brothers and what they did to him. Maybe another time he said, Joseph, tell me about your family. You must have had a family. Like, where did you come from? And he would have told them the stories of his father Jacob and his grandfather Isaac and his great-grandfather Abraham. And Joseph would have been frank with him all along the way. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe, my God, how he's had his hand on me, how he's directed me, how my God had his hand on my father and my grandfather. And the reason I, I think that way is because a little bit later in the story, we'll find out that Pharaoh has a couple dreams, and he says, I need somebody to, to help me understand these dreams. And remember that two people who had dreams, Joseph had interpreted them, so Pharaoh says, get this guy for me. So Pharaoh comes to him, and he says, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph had an opportunity at that moment to do a number of things. He goes, yeah, you know, um, I've been studying these kind of things, and I've, I, I've learned them, you know, I've, I've studied enough dreams that I understand that this means that and that that means that. Somebody might come along to you and say, wow, you've got a really successful business. How did you ever accomplish all of that? You have an opportunity right there to go in two different directions. My, that's a beautiful house that you live in. How, how did you get that house? Like, like, did you design it? Did you build it? You've got an opportunity right there to go in two different directions. With every blessing in your life, with any gift and ability that you have in your life, when somebody says, wow, how did you do that? You have an opportunity. So what did Joseph say to Pharaoh? It's not in me. But God will give you a favorable answer. And so when you look at all you've accomplished in your life and people comment about it, somebody makes a question about it, do you ever say along those same lines, you know, it's not me? I can't tell you why God has blessed me. He's given me good health. I, I've worked hard, but I acknowledge that my, my health and my thinking comes from God. God opened the door that I could get into this school and I could learn in this situation. Like, do we have a humble and a, and a, a biblical response to why we are successful? Or do we have an arrogant, unbiblical response to why we are successful? Do we acknowledge God in our lives? Do we acknowledge God's gifts to us? Do we attribute our success to Him or to ourselves? For a number of months, the leadership in this church has been wrestling with trying to articulate a focus for us for the next number of years. And we've spent a lot of time doing it. We're, we're really not settled on it yet. And we've come up with a various amount of versions of stuff that we're trying to grasp. I want to give you one that we've wrestled with only to illustrate this point again about, remember, we're thinking about his master saw his success and that God had caused it. So this is in the context of, this is one of the things that we've been wrestling with. We, we, we've moved on beyond this one. But it was this, to give everybody in Oceanside an opportunity to see, hear, and experience the gospel. There's a couple of things floating around in our heads there. One of them, we, we are more and more convinced of the, the magnitude of the gospel, the transformative power of the gospel. 
The gospel just doesn't save us. The gospel transforms our marriages. The gospel transforms our relationships with our children. The gospel transforms my character. The gospel is what accounts for making me more and more into the image of God. It's massive. And so if, in fact, the gospel is transforming our lives, what should be the result of that? People ought to see it. So what we're saying is to give everybody in Oceanside an opportunity to see the gospel. What we're saying is we are wanting the gospel to transform our lives. To show the power of God at work in our lives. And, and then when people see that, they, they don't say, wow, you must have really just dug in your heels and did something great. We say, no, you know, let me, let me, let me tell you. God is working in my life, and God has done this, and God directed me that way, and I owe all the thanks to God. Let me tell you about God. And our goal is because we want you to experience the same transformative power at work in your life as is evident in my life. We believe in the transformative power of the gospel. And so I think that that's what was going on in Joseph's life. His relationship with God, it was uncontainable. And he was not ashamed of it. He was not embarrassed by it. He was willing to give all the, uh, all the credit to God for everything that God was doing in his life. And so there was evident blessing in his life. And Potiphar made the connection between what he saw and who had caused what he's seen in Joseph's life. The third is just the extent of God's influence, or the fourth is the extent of God's influence. There are so many words and phrases repeated in these first six or seven verses that, that we can just so quickly read over. One of them is the little Hebrew word, kol. It's a word that is variously translated everything, uh, most often all, um, and you find it at least five times in these verses. God caused all that he did to succeed. Not just a little bit. Of, you know, it wasn't a bit of Joseph, a little bit of Joseph, and a little bit of... It was God that caused it all. And then another, God, um, Potiphar put him in charge of all that he had. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that Potiphar had, in both his field and his house. Everything, all of it, was God. And do you see, what, you see what's also going on here? I don't know if we make this connection. And if you're not a follower of God today, uh, you need to hear this. Because the truth that applied to Joseph and the Hebrews applies to the Egyptians and everyone who is outside of a personal relationship with God. God does not only cause his own people to succeed. God causes everyone to succeed. And so whether you follow God or you don't, your success is attributed because of the grace of God in your life. We call that the common grace of God. So when we face droughts, we, we faced one a little bit last year. At least I didn't see that. I don't think it just rained on the gardens of Christians. It rained on the gardens of everyone. The same principles that apply to God's wonderful provision and prosperity to those who have a relationship with him apply to everyone. And it's a dangerous thing. Just read about Nebuchadnezzar. It's a dangerous thing to take credit for God's work in your life. And so this is a text which says, 
The blessing of God that falls on both Hebrews and Egyptians rests on all people, regardless of their relationship with God. One more thing to note. It says, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for the sake of Joseph. See, there's a, God is really making a point here. But he says, God blessed the Egyptian's house for the sake of Joseph. I just want to ask you and I this question. Are you a conduit of God's blessing in the school that you go to? In the classes that you attend? In the place where you are employed? In the home where you live? In the neighborhood where you live? You see, the Bible talks about how Christians are to be salt and light. How we are to be a preservative. How we are to be flavor. How we are to be different. We ought to be the best students any teacher could ever have. We ought to be the best employees that ever any employer could ever have. We ought to be the best neighbors that any neighbor could ever want. You see, there's this wonderful thing that God can bless others through us. As we serve God, as we walk with God, as we acknowledge God, as we, as we go to restaurants, as we go and shop, as, as, we, as we live and, and, and interact with people all around us, there should be a blessing that flows from us to them. And sometimes in bigger ways, there should be a blessing that comes to them because of our faithfulness to God and our trustworthiness to them. There's even a bigger thing that's going on here. There's a fulfillment of God's principle that's taking place here. Remember what God said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the beautiful promise of God. Do you know that? That as a son and daughter of Abraham, which you and I are, if, if we are Christians today, if we are in Christ, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. And through us, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just here in Oceanside, but through George and Marge. She's just slipped my mind, the one who's gone to Italy. Andrea. Through Andrea, she will be a blessing of God to Italy. Through the Cardonas, who for 20 years, the people of Colombia are blessed. It's a wonderful reminder to us of the way God works in, 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 in perspectives that are so much bigger than our lives. So how did Joseph survive? How did this young boy of 17 years old survive this incredible treatment? I think it was through at least two ways. The first was his confidence in the word of God. Remember he had two dreams? And in those dreams, both his father and his brothers got the interpretation right. They believed that God had given him this dreams, these dreams and that God's word was that one day you will all bow down to Joseph. And of course, part of the story is about how they were trying to thwart the sovereignty of God. But I think one of the things that Joseph hung on to was the truth of those dreams. The promise that was embedded in those dreams. The word of God that came to him through those dreams. I bet you he even went further back to some of the promises that, that I'm sure his 
father and his grandfather would have shared to him about how the word of God could be trusted, about how the word of God never failed, about how the promises of God, even in his great-grandfather Abraham, who wanted a child, and God said, you will have an heir, and he waited 25 years for that promise to be fulfilled. I suspect that somehow Joseph had come to grab on to not only the promises of God, but the God of those promises, and realize that they would never fail. No matter how dark his life got, no matter how difficult his life became, he could cling to the promises of God. Loved ones, that's no different than it is for us today. If you want to survive and thrive, plant the promises of God in your heart. Secondly, I think he continually meditated on the works of God. Let me explain. The psalmist says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. And he says, I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. So I think it was the stories that his father and his uncles and his grandfather and his great-grandfather had told him. The highlights of the hand of God in their life, the works of God that sustained them through difficult circumstances. And I was wrestling with this in my own life, and part of it is just as we come through so many funerals in a past little while, and, and sometimes it's hard to get at the spiritual history of somebody. And I, I just asked myself, do we talk about our spiritual histories? When you have family meals, do you ever sit around and say, well, let's all share something that God has done in our life in the last six months? Do you ever tell your kids or your grandkids how it was you came into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you tell them why you decided to be baptized? Do you tell them the circumstances of which God answered a remarkable prayer in your life? Do they have any sense of the way that God has worked in your life? I think that's one of the things that sustained Joseph is these stories of the amazing deeds of God. And they bolstered him when he was in the darkest places in, 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 on that pedestal and being bought by human beings when he was in that prison that what was going through his head was, God, you are powerful. God, you are mighty. God, you have done this. God, you did that. God, you can do it again. I trust you. Another one says, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Hi. <laughs> but loved ones, that's, I think that's what's sustaining. Oh, there's probably more. But is your heart full of the promises of God? And are your memory banks bursting with the wondrous deeds of God that have been shared with you from your family or from your friends that remind you that God is able to keep you in dark times? Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this section in Joseph's life where we get a glimpse of the theolo theology, the theological truth that sustained him. 
the truth about you, the relationship that he had with you, the prosperity that you provided, the goodness that you uh, exhibited, the way you kept your promises, that it was these things that sustained him in the everyday realities of his life. Father, I thank you that you opened my eyes to see my need of Christ. And through Christ, you brought me into a relationship with you. I don't just call you God, I call you Father. Father, I ask that if there are any here today that don't know you as Father, that don't have a personal relationship with you, if there are any here today, oh, Spirit of God, would you soften their hearts? Would you warm them to the wonders of a relationship with the God of this universe, but with a God who will never leave them or forsake them, but be with them wherever they go? Oh, Father, prove your word today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.